Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of Education for the American Neurological Association. And I want to welcome you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today in particular, we will be featuring our AUA podcast series on breaking down the barriers, incorporating new immuno-oncology therapies. Today's podcast specifically is on how to properly administer immuno-oncology therapies in an infusion suite. We will have a comprehensive discussion where we'll do an introduction to immuno-oncology therapies, talk about mechanism of action, understanding adverse events and safety management, developing the expertise and a team approach, and then the evolution of immuno-oncology therapies. I am delighted to have with me today Dr. Neil Shore. Dr. Shore is the medical director for the Carolina Urologic Research Center, and he practices with Atlantic Urology Clinics in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Dr. Shore is also the secretary treasurer for the Society of Urologic Oncology. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Vic. It's, it's a great pleasure to speak with you. I also would like to acknowledge that we have support for this podcast provided by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck and Company Incorporated. We do have some learning objectives for this podcast. So before I have Dr. Shore jump in, I would just like to go over those. And at the completion of this podcast, the learner will be able to identify current immuno-oncology treatment barriers associated with the proper administration of IO therapies in an infusion suite and identify current approved indications and where future evidence-based strategies may take us. So with all that aside, Dr. Shore, I'd like to ask you why urologists should learn about immuno-oncology therapies for the treatment of bladder cancer. So thanks very much, Vic. Um, you know, it's an important question. And, and probably, at least in my career, uh, I've been a big proponent of uh, emphasizing the importance for urologists to learn about systemic therapies in all of GU oncology. But we're gonna talk specifically tonight about bladder cancer but before we would, would say uh, the, get into the, the, the specifics in bladder cancer, uh, I would just say that we're seeing just dramatic changes in the last uh, two to three years in new approved therapies that have been um, uh, developed in uh, metastatic muscle invasive bladder cancer. And very similarly to what we saw in advanced prostate cancer and specifically castration resistant prostate cancer where the therapies received approval in the the most far advanced uh, biology spectrum of the disease the patients who were had uh, most advanced the highest tumor burden had typically failed all other therapies 
And in prostate, we saw the development of six new therapies that had life prolonging survival since 2010. We've just seen the approval of five new immuno-oncologic therapies known as checkpoint inhibitors in bladder cancer. And this just happened in the last two years. And, and frankly, we're on the cusp of multiple other therapies uh, that are in trial development that could add to the combinatorial uh, use with IO therapies, immuno-oncologic therapies, not only in muscle invasive metastatic bladder cancer, but hopefully, and I would say with, with, with tremendous optimism, and I'm not particularly cautious about saying it because I've had the good fortune to be involved in many of these trials now, that we will almost certainly see a, an opportunity for the immuno-oncologic agents to be moved more proximally in the bladder cancer disease spectrum just like we saw with the advanced CRPC therapies go from post-chemotherapy to pre-chemotherapy to non-metastatic castration resistant. And now we're looking at multiple studies uh, for patients with the advanced prostate cancer drugs and hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And very, very analogously, we're seeing that same trial development in bladder cancer. So I would tell my urologic colleagues, it's absolutely essential to understand that these remarkably um, uh, and clinically significant therapies in very advanced bladder cancer metastatic patients will have a role more proximally in the disease continuum. Now, Neil, I know that you have been a real advocate um, and a real teacher for urologists on treating advanced prostate cancer and having the urologist be intimately involved in that treatment rather than say passing a patient off to a medical oncologist. Do you think you'll see the same, uh, that we'll see the same type of thing happening in bladder cancer? And do you feel equally as passionate about urologists staying intimately involved in treatment? Well, that's a really, you know, very good question. And, and let me be very clear in saying, I don't necessarily, you know, uh, uh, cotton to the notion of, you know, of passing it off to the medical oncologist or avoiding a collaborative, integrative uh, um, work with our medical oncology colleagues, our primary care physicians, our radiation oncology physician colleagues, nuke med radiologists, et cetera. And in the case of immuno-oncologics, one would almost certainly want to develop a closer relationship with their, their PCPs, their endocrinologists, their cardiologists, their gastroenterologists, even potentially dermatologists. So why do I say that? And we'll get more into this in understanding adverse event safety profiles and the management. But at the end of the day, Vic, it, it really, there is no perfect model to deliver the best care. One could certainly look to the academic model, which in its, its perfect conception really is the ideal model. You have collaboration and lots of subspecialists specialists who can deliver the best care and have 
um, multidisciplinary tumor boards. But as we all know, 80 to 85 percent of cancer care is happening in the community, and there and and so. As we say that you know, advanced malignancies have a, let, a lot of heterogeneity, which is true. It's true in prostate, and it's true in bladder cancer, and certainly in kidney cancer as well. All of the, the big three geo-oncologic uh, domains that we research and, and do trials on, and of course, these are the patients we see. And so that said, that heterogeneity parallels the heterogeneity that we see in the community. There are wonderful opportunities for uh, the specialties to work together. Sometimes that's just not achievable because of proximity of clinics. Sometimes it's not achievable because there's a lack of necessary interest in one specialty versus another. As it relates to our urology colleagues, one of the phenomenon that we're seeing happening is aggregation of uh, solo practitioners, one, two, three-man groups into much larger group practices. And in a very short period of time, in the 10 years um, uh, that we actually, you know, initiated um, LUGPA, the Large Urology Group Practice Association, we've seen a tremendous consolidation of five and 10-person practices to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50-person practices. These larger groups, and it doesn't, you don't have to be super large, you can be a five to 10-person group. If you have someone in your in your practice, your clinic, who is really dedicated to systemic therapy, and the rest of your partners <clears throat> can be collaborative, that person can develop tremendous expertise in conjunction with the support <clears throat> of, a, of a dedicated nursing team and an administrative team to help with the practical uh, aspects of access, reimbursement, et cetera. And if there's, uh, if there's an ability within the community to work collaboratively with a different specialist, then I'm always 100% in favor of it. It is important to recognize that advanced cancer patients, and no surprise in saying this, these are, these are arguably uh, terminally ill patients, uh, not always, but usually, and they will develop complications of disease progression and possibly from the therapy. So in order to do this well, and urologists absolutely can do this well because we've seen them do it now in the advanced prostate cancer clinic. So my, um, my goal, my um, urging is if you can do an advanced prostate cancer clinic, don't be dissuaded and don't be put off by creating an advanced bladder cancer clinic. It really simply takes the commitment and the team approach. Great. So now let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, uh, immunotherapies. You mentioned just just before that there's five checkpoint inhibitors that have become available in the last two years alone for the treatment of bladder cancer. How do, how do they work? So if we think about, you know, the, the, the immune system, which uh, it, it can be very complicated, and there's still tremendous um, <laughs> amounts of particular targets within the immune system itself that we're learning. And there's been phenomenal pioneering work identifying therapies that can be T-cell activators or other therapies that can block the T-cell from doing its 
recognition and creating what we call a natural killer effect. Um, and so one of the ways, somewhat simplistically, to in the world of bladder cancer is we've had the development of uh, the immune checkpoint inhibition of T cells. The original uh, checkpoint inhibition or, or, or a blockage of the T cell came from what were known as, and still today are known as CTLA-4 or cytotoxic lymphocyte activated mediated inhibition of T cells. Now we've had approvals of this particular um, targeted inhibitory effect uh, the drug known as ipilimumab has been uh, approved first in advanced melanoma. It's given systemically. And there can be um, uh, a, a, a separate adverse event profile that I'll describe differently from the more peripherally located um, checkpoint inhibitors known as PD-1, PDL one This stands for program cell death uh, one receptor inhibitor and the program cell death ligand inhibitor. And, and, and simplistically put, the, by blocking the, the, the PD-1 inhibitors or the PD-L1 inhibitors, and there's slight nuance differences amongst the five uh, IOs, they essentially bind and inhibit a T cell response. Uh, and they can also uh, uh, be used um, uh, both effectively on the tumor cell and on the immune cell. So um, it unleashes the ability of the T cell. It takes a sort of what some people have described uh, as an analogy to a car system. It takes the foot off the brake and allows the T cell to go unbridled looking and recognizing the antigen of the bladder cancer cell. And bladder cancer is a very well known as being a highly mutated cancer. And so because of that, there is a, a lot of opportunity for the, the trafficking um, dendritic cells to present to the ultimate destroyer, killer T cells, which lead to cell death. The, the wonderful thing about bladder cancer as a, a, an immuno-oncology is because it's so highly mutated with all of this complexity, um, potentially as a result of so many environmental toxicities that we're exposed to, classic one being, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, from cigarette smoking, tobacco products, but uh, other things as well, petrochemical uh, exposures and other industrial exposures but these, um, these many different neoantigens uh, allow uh, the immune system to uh, let them be seen as foreign. The natural tendency of our immune system is to have accelerants, the T cells, to keep them pushing forward to eradicate all foreign antigen, whether it's neoplastic, viral, or you know, bacterial. But it, there has to be a, a break on the system so that we don't end up all having, you know, a significant autoimmune phenomenon. So, simplistically put, the immunooncologics take the press, take the break off and allow the T cells to recognize, hopefully in more times than not, and in a controlled fashion, the specific 
uh, neoantigens of the bladder cancer cell line of prolifer proliferation. So now with that, we know that uh, uh, immunoncologic agents can have some significant adverse events um, that need to be appropriately managed. Now, I know that that's one of the things that makes some practitioners uh, a little bit, let's say, leery about getting involved in um, administering uh, these agents. What, first of all, what are some of the key adverse events and how can we avoid them um, or manage problems when they occur? Yeah. So um, we have a, a, a lot of us who have been involved in this now and, and, and thinking about these specific immune-related adverse events or IRAEs. Uh, another way of looking at it is, you know, name an itis, and you can get an itis with virtually any part in any part of the body with all of these. Now, the good news is the really significant grade three and higher um, uh, immune-related adverse events from these therapies takes place in about 15 to 18 percent of patients. So the overwhelming majority, 80 plus percent of patients are not seeing these. And interestingly, when they don't see these, the, the drug is remarkably well tolerated. And I've had the good fortune of now having administered all five of the approved therapies. And I've, I've seen the itis phenomenon. And essentially, you can see that in the skin, you can get you know various kinds of rashes. You can get a colitis. You can get uh, a pancreatitis, you can get a transaminitis affecting the liver, you can get nephritis, a, a pulmonitis, which is typically you'll see a ground glass appearance on x-ray. Very, very infrequent, less than 1% of the time, but it's a severe reaction as a form of myocard myocarditis. There can be uh, a, a hypothalamic pituitary endocrinitis um, there, there are potentials for some uh, Milo effects, but I'm, I'm mentioning all of these not to to act a, in a daunting way. Far from it. But as we all know, in any systemic therapy, whether it's an oncologic or non-oncologic therapy, there are always these potential risks. And one of the key things in managing these uh, adverse events is. Uh, initial patient education, which largely is done by my nursing team. I do some of it. We have educational materials to inform the patient. If you have any one of these itises, call us right away. Early detection is key. And so um, not all of these itises that I've described, they're not always all related to immunotherapy. There can be other things, but if you think it is, you stop the therapy and safely you administer uh, um, steroids uh, very, uh, very quickly and at fairly high doses, um, which uh, oftentimes really uh, is, is very effective in ending the event. Now, we don't really have a good understanding of who will get the, these itises or not. They typically occur relatively early on in the course of administration, but there are always exceptions to that. Um, we, we typically also 
have so far in our trials, we've avoided patients who have a known history of autoimmune um, disease. It's not to say that at some point these patients might benefit if indeed they had the misfortune of having a, a diagnosis of malignancy. But you know, the, the question that you ask is, is very important uh, ultimately because some of the patients when they'll get uh, one of these reactions, they oftentimes can be stopped, drug interrupted, steroids instituted, and you can uh, reinstitute later on, depending if it wasn't particularly severe in its form. Um, and at the same time, we've seen patients who have these reactions, and yet fortunately they continue to get the benefit um, uh, in terms of disease stabilization and regression as well. So um, for patients who have the really severe reactions, uh, we're typically uncomfortable in restarting them. But the, 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 the key, Vic, is recognizing, stopping, starting uh, uh, steroids. Uh, if there's specific specialty uh, advice and management that you could use with um, your, your gastroenterologist, your endocrinologist, just as like we would with anything else that we do in our treatments, um, then that's a good thing to do. And that gets back to the importance of of, of bringing in a multidisciplinary approach when appropriate. Neil, let's talk a little bit about how these agents are delivered. What's involved in, in the delivery of uh, immuno-oncologic therapy? So, you know, it, it's interesting that the title of the program talks about having mm -hmm. a seat. You know, I, I just use a regular exam room. In fact, we have two infusion rooms and uh, both, one is on my research side and one is in the clinic. Um, they're, they, they're both equipped with a comfortable reclining chair. Um, we have um, an IV pole for the administration and the infusion. All of the immuno-oncologics, the checkpoint inhibitors, whether they're a PDL1 or a PD1, are all in, uh, delivered uh, intravenously. And typically anywhere from you know 30 to 60 minutes, there's no pre-medication, uh, no post-medication uh, as a general rule. Um, the patients, I usually just encourage them to be hydrated. Uh, we watch them, you know, the first time they a drug is administered for you know at least an hour to make sure they're tolerating. Okay, and uh, frankly, they they invariably do. Many of the patients will say, well, you know, that's it. I didn't experience anything. And so I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, the overwhelming majority of patients have essentially no reaction whatsoever and none of these itises. Um, so the patient, the, the delivery, it, it, depending upon which of the five you're using, can be given uh, on a two-week basis or on a three-week basis. Um, the medication we uh, is is received. It's administered by my uh, by an RN. Um, we don't have requirement for mixing it uh, uh, in a uh, a hood. We have a hood within our clinic where we we mix uh, up our our taxane based therapies if we're giving docetaxel or kepazitaxel. And some of these things actually may be changing over time, um, but that again shouldn't be a reason to. You, 
to to stop someone from wanting to deliver um, this therapy. Uh, if you can cannulate a vein in the, in the office, if you can put in a peripheral IV, if you have an RN who wants to become educated along with a physician uh, leader, then you can give uh, immuno-oncologic therapies. So patients aren't generally getting sick during the infusion. Uh, essentially, you know, I would say, you know, never like to say never, but I've never seen that happen. And we've been administering um, IOs in bladder and kidney and also in prostate cancer trials now uh, for close to two years. I've given easily well in excess of, uh, uh, I don't probably a couple of hundred infusions. We've never had an infusion reaction uh, in any of these patients. So it is essentially um, a qualified nurse, um, yourself, uh, anyone else on the team as far as just involved in, in, um, in the administration? No, that's it. That, that is absolutely it for the administration. Uh, and again, you know, talking to the patient and letting them know, uh, please let us know if you're having any of these itises. Call us immediately. We're av always available. You know, we take call 24-7. Uh, I actually learned a little nice, you know, um, uh, um, advice from Elizabeth Plymac. We get, we're starting to give our patients a little, little card that says, I'm on the following immuno-oncologic agent. That we want them to just have available in case they show up in some emergency room somewhere and uh, they see an emergency room doctor, hasn't happened. It, it, it certainly could if they showed up with, you know, perhaps a severe colitis. We'd want them to know that probably the best thing they could do is just look up the drug that they're on and know to start them immediately on, on uh, a high dose of intravenous steroids. You know, it, a question comes to my mind if they do develop colitis or pancreatitis or any of the other itises as, as um, you, you so nicely described them. How soon after therapy does it usually occur? And after how many administrations does it usually occur? Is there any rhyme or reason to that? So there's a really nice article that was published in the New England Journal this year. It was a nice review article. Um, and I'm, I'm, I apologize, I'm blanking. It was this spring. There's a very nice review article on immuno-oncologic agents and, you know, the, we talked about one of the, and it's really great table, you know, what, what's, why do they occur? Well, bottom line is, you know, the precise pathophysiology is really not known. Um, we, the, the best way to treat, as we said, is to interrupt therapy and, and start high dose steroids. There are some other nuanced areas and, and other specific things to know about, but that's the key thing. Uh, they usually occur in the first few weeks to months after treatment, but as I said, they can occur any time. Um, dermatologic events are typically the first things to appear, but but not always. Um, you know, why do they occur in some patients and not others? Um, we really don't know, frankly. Um, does it is it a, a, a impact negatively on the efficacy? Well, not always. Sometimes uh, patients will see this, the efficacy benefit in their disease stabilization, 
um, despite the fact that this, the therapy had to be held. Um, uh, so uh, you can, and then the, the other question you ask is, can you restart treatment after a, a major adverse event? Um, well, there, there, it, you can potentially switch to another agent. We don't have a lot of prospective tr uh, data on that. Uh, it really just simply, I think, depends on the severity of the initial uh, immune-related adverse event. Um, and, and so um, we're, we're learning a lot more about the opportunities for restarting after a period of time has gone by. Um, and, and, and so people have done this. Uh, I, I know I've actually switched some patients from one IO to another. Part of that decision had to do with uh, coming off of a trial. Uh, and uh, some other times it had to do with um, their, um, their third party reimbursement. And I've had no problem with, with those switches of therapy. And those were typically done when patients were clinically responding well. What about duration of therapy? Well, that's the beautiful thing about um, this therapy is that, first of all, only probably in at least in metastatic bladder cancer patients, only about 20 to 30 percent of patients will have a really a significant response um, that have uh, this receptor response. If we, we talk about the tail of the curve, in that there are a subpopulation of patients who have remarkable durability. Durability that we've never really seen before in metastatic bladder cancer patients with MVAC or, or, or uh, cisplatinum and gemcitabine. And that's the part that's really, you know, gets medical oncologists and uro-oncologists very excited. We see patients who typically may have had at best a five to nine month response or now having responses, you know, in, with metastatic disease going, you know, beyond two years. Now, what we don't know is when to stop therapy. Uh, you, when you have somebody who's having one of these really great responses and presumably is tolerating drug really well, we just don't know when to stop. Do we stretch out the treatment Instead of two weeks, go to four weeks, or four weeks, go to eight weeks. Uh, we, we really don't know. Um, and it, I've had started to have this conversation with, with a lot of my patients, and uh, I, I just continue to learn from everybody else's experiences. And sometimes we, we, we're, we're, we learn from just, you know, anecdotally, empirically, uh, but it, it's, it's something that we need more prospective uh, data for. You know, Neil, I just want to finish up. If you could just go through a little bit of, uh, of an evolution of the different therapies that we have available, and then really briefly, where do you think the future is going? Yeah. So as I said, we have these, um, you know, five different immuno-oncologic therapies, uh, you know, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, dervalumab, um, um, at atezolizumab, the first one that was approved, um, um, avelumab, and the, they're, we're now starting to look at these drugs in uh, other combinations, potentially with um, the CTLA-4s that I mentioned earlier, ipilimumab, as well as tremilumumab. 
Um, and those are IO-IO combinations. We're also looking at IO-chemotherapy combinations. But what's really exciting to me is taking the IOs more proximally as we started off in the disease state to potentially neoadjuvant therapy prior to cystectomy. So instead of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, because of the really tr the tolerability of the IOs, possibly using IOs in trimodal bladder sparing uh, strategies. And for most urologists, and the part that it's extremely important for me to emphasize this is the use of IO therapy in BCG unresponsive, high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. We all know that BCG is an immunomodulator. And so as uh, in, we as urologists have been practicing immunotherapy for bladder cancer with the pioneering work by Morales and giving BCG and both of its effects on the innate and adoptive immune system uh, uh, mechanisms of response. Combining potentially uh, IOs into this high-risk BCG unresponsive group potentially allows for the avoidance or, or certainly the delay of cystectomy and even potentially could have impact on the maintenance regimens of BCG. And then finally, I just wanted to mention that there are so many other interesting combinations and new uh, mechanisms of actions and targeted pathways for the FGFR pathway, the IDO pathway. Uh, there, there are several new novel intravesical agents that uh, could be combined. They're not yet approved and neither are the FGFRs, the IDOs, the Nectin-4s and these new novel intravesical uh, drugs, but they're very, very close. So they can all potentially at some point throughout the bladder cancer disease continuum be combined with IOs because of the unique mechanisms of action. And so for our, our, our specialty, just like in advanced prostate cancer, this is a, an exceptionally fertile time for the groups that have the desire, they have the, the personnel, nursing, physician, who want to become dedicated to this. It can't be a dalliance. You've got to be into it. Uh, and if you are, there's no reason why you can't do it. AUA does an incredible job at offering courses. I had the privilege of being involved in a course in this year's 2018 AUA. You know, thanks to your efforts, Vic, and in, in, in really promoting education in so many different uh, uh, formats, it, it really should not dissuade anyone from taking advantage of expanding their armamentarium of care. Yeah, you know, to me, it seems like we're just at the tip of the iceberg. And certainly, if these therapies uh, become um, standard of care in the future for certain forms of non-muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer, then the urologist is going to have to be very intimately involved as the urologist will have to uh, follow those patients on a regular basis. So it sounds like it's a, it's a really exciting area and uh, one that uh, it sounds to me like there'll be uh, a tremendous amount of growth uh, in, in the upcoming years. Um, and uh, obviously for uh, a disease uh, that, uh, that can be as difficult as uh, advanced bladder cancer is, 
uh, this is certainly good news for urologists and more importantly, uh, good news for our patients. Um, I would really like to thank uh, Dr. Neil Shore uh, for um, co-hosting this podcast with me. Um, that was a really clear uh, and uh, uh, comprehensive discussion. And uh, um, as a non-oncologist myself, uh, if I could understand it, then I'm sure the vast majority of our listeners can understand it as well. So thank you, uh, not only for your time, but for that uh, really nice uh, explanation of all the topics that we, uh, that we uh, discussed today. Um, and uh, thank you for all that you do uh, for the American Neurological Association uh, as well in, in teaching our members. Um, as always, uh, if uh, anyone uh, would like more information, you can visit uh, auau.auanet.org on the web. And, and I thank Dr. Shore. And of course, I also want to thank our audience for listening.